Today's program is the first of two uh, sessions that we're having on the subject of U.S. security, trade, and development. And uh, the program is brought to you not only by the Federalist Society, but by USAID. Booz Allen, which is a consulting firm that works with, with AID, uh, the LSU Law School's Hemispheric Trade Program. And in particular, I want to thank Dean Reuter and Julie Nix of the Federalist Society and Maria Rodriguez of Booz Allen for putting all of this together for us. I just want to tell you a little bit about the background of why we're doing this. Ambassador Bolton, for instance, did not realize that the Federalist Society has expanded abroad in recent years. Some of you may know that the Federalist Society has chapters in Europe now, in London, Brussels, Paris, and on some kind of a liaison in Geneva. And then last fall in November, Leonard and I went to Guatemala in connection with the Mount Pelerin Society meeting, and we had a gathering of um, various lawyers and think tank heads from Latin America. Many of these think tanks have been well established over the years uh, by uh, the Atlas Foundation, and they have other connections in the U.S. But by and large, the efforts in Latin America have been on the economic side only without regard to law. And this year at the uh, Mount Pelerin meeting, they discovered the importance of law, and it was very pleasant to hear that. And they realized that, uh, that economic development can't, cannot occur in a vacuum. Uh, some years ago, Milton Friedman, uh, only a couple of years ago, said that he had discovered that his original opinion that economics and free markets were all you needed for development in these countries, that that opinion was wrong and that he had come to the conclusion that legal institutions were absolutely essential. And so it is appropriate, it seems to me, that the Federalist Society not leave the American Bar Association to be the only American legal organization out there in the international arena, and that's why we're having this conference and, and other things to get lawyers in the Federalist Society more interested and involved in this kind of work. Last year we had this conference with AID and Inter-American Inter Development Bank at uh, LSU on hemispheric trade. This conference is essentially here today in the, in the second session is an outgrowth of that and in some sense a repackaging of it. And to give you a little bit more background, uh, I want to recognize and, and those uh, at AID with whom we work most closely, and these are three people in the what's called the EGAT uh, division, the Economic Growth, uh, Agriculture, and Trade division, uh, Nick Cleases, with whom I've worked for a number of years, and also Wade Channel, who's here, and Charlie Schwartz uh, may be here if he's not here right now. The three of them are in the commercial law division, and I was going to ask Nick just to, to uh, uh, say a few words about what they do, because many of you had the idea maybe that all AID does is distribute money, um, it, it, and it, I want you to know they're doing some good work. Thank you for uh, all coming today and attending, and uh, this is a very exciting opportunity. One of the things that we're trying to do is extend our outreach to other groups that may not necessarily know about our activities and are about, about our commitment to economic growth around the world. Uh, you know, certainly most of you have heard about, you know, our efforts, uh, the administration's efforts at democracy promotion, rule of law promotion, and, you know, I'd like to say today that uh, a very fundamental component of that is commercial law rights that, that people have. Um, I just want to speak very briefly. In this conference, this two-day, uh, this two-part uh, 
session, uh, sessions that we're having is um, dovetails nicely with at least our conceptual framework. Our conceptual framework to commercial law consists of four pillars. One is property rights, and property rights means things like, you know, your title to your house or maybe, you know, whatever rights you have as a tenant in, in your home or your farm. Uh, it, it extends to things like chattels or movable objects like your vehicles, your tractors, all the way to intellectual property rights. So that's one basket of things. Another thing is something that Hernando de Soto might call legal personality, uh, but it means, you know, can you register a business? Does the state recognize you as an individual or as a, a firm and in, in the marketplace? And that is, uh, you know, uh, a very fundamental right, I think, most people would think. You know, and it's right up there with the, the ability to vote. Maybe it's even more important than the ability to vote. That is to, you know, uh, sustain your economic wherewithal uh, in society. Um, a third very fundamental thing is c uh, commercial dispute resolution. Commercial dispute resolution um, underpins everything. Um, uh, Mr. Bolton just earlier said, uh, mentioned Hugo Chavez, and there's other people around the world like Robert Mugabe. These are people that have actually taken over the apparatus of government. Uh, John teaches uh, continuing legal education courses on the separation of powers. But what if one individual or one group takes over all three powers in, in a society, and that is the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the commercial uh, dispute resolution branch, let's say the courts? That means that you can be the judge, jury, and executioner. And so all your political opponents can't get their day in court. Um, their rights won't be upheld. And, you know, what value is your property rights if uh, you know in advance how the judge is going to come out on it and it's going to be against you? Um, just referencing what happened in Venezuela and in Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe had banned uh, private property rights. So when he uh, shoved off all these people that were in these shanty towns around Harare, they actually did not have a legal uh, foothold to rest on and say that, you know, their rights were abridged because the legislature had actually said there's no more private property in land anymore. Uh, Hugo Chavez had um, basically sacked a lot of people on the courts, and he's also packed uh, the parliament over there. Um, and, uh, of course, the last pillar that I'd like to mention is contract law and contract rights, the rights and, and the rules that regulate the marketplace. And uh, it encompasses a number of very different things, but that is how can people trust what they're, uh, they're buying into, selling, um, and, and how their contracts will be in, in, interpreted will be uh, reasonable and within expectations. And this can extend all the way into international trade law, the finer aspects of sanitary and phytosanitary measures, and things like that. Um, anyway, I, uh, let me leave it at that. Uh, this conference, again, is organized around those four pillars, but of course those four pillars have deep reach and they go into some of these very arcane matters. Um, we welcome the Federal Society um, um, Federal Society members in, in helping us along with these things, uh, taking a more active interest. John is uh, probably going to talk to you a little bit more about uh, opportunities for some pro bono work with us. We're working on a technical publication. It's in draft right now, and it's one of the CLE materials that Julie Nix can provide to you. It's also on our website. Um, just for people that are listening in and, and for your information right now, our website is, um, of course, there's a USAID website, but Booz Allen maintains a website on commercial legal reform. That website is www.bizlawreform.com. That's B-I-Z lawreform.com. And uh, we look forward to that being upgraded soon uh, with Ansem and Benton's uh, help over here. And um, let me leave it at that. Thank you very much, John. And... Um, 
um, I look forward to the rest of the day and the next panel too. Thank you, Nick. I'm just going to lead in with a few things before we start with our, our, our panelists. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that the Federalist Society is actually co-sponsoring a visit by Justice Scalia to the uh, U UPC, the University in Peru. I don't know what the Spanish name is exactly. He had, what's that? Okay. I'll accept that. Uh, at the end of May, and, and Justice Scalia is going to go down there, and, and the Federal Society is co-sponsoring it, and he's going to be addressing uh, Latin American judges, primarily from Peru, about what they ought to, uh, ought to be doing in their role as judges. And just as we have had this controversy in the U.S. about whether the U.S. Supreme Court should be citing foreign sources, uh, this is an issue in some of these countries, along with many other issues, and the Colombian Supreme Court just recently cited an international treaty in finding a right to abortion uh, in, in that country. So uh, the judges, and as judge, uh, former Judge Bork has said, we have the rise of judiciaries all over the world. Whether conservatives like it or not, <clears throat> there is an inter internationalization of law that goes hand in hand with the globalization of economies. Sometimes conservatives think very favorably about inter internationalization in terms of globalization of the economy. But where the economy goes, so also the law will go. And the question is, in what form? Who will have what authorities? And, and ultimately, I hope in the question and, and exchange session of this that we'll talk about the problems that are there not only on the economic side, but also the legal cultural issues between the common law and the civil law. So today, when we're talking about property rights and members of the Federal Society are, of course, all for property rights, it's one thing to say you're for property rights and to even put in your Constitution a provision that says we respect property rights. But institutionally and in terms of legislation and even more so in terms of the constitutional structure, how does one, as a practical matter, ensure the protection of property rights? Ambassador Bolton said he had been very optimistic through the 90s that the privatization that was occurring in Latin America would take hold and continue. Um, I was hopeful too, but in retrospect, I suppose, I'm not terribly surprised because I've spent so many years in Louisiana. And Louisiana is essentially the northernmost uh, Latin American country north of Miami. And uh, the ambassador mentioned sugar. Well, you know, I know all about the sugar farmers. I've taught their kids, and, and I know that conservative senators, uh, John, uh, Senator Vinter in Louisiana and Mel Martinez in, in Florida, both voted against CAFTA uh, because of the sugar farmer vote in those states. So we have strong political forces that prevent us from living up to what we supposedly profess in theory. But what allows us to get things through is our constitutional structure. Well, imagine in Latin America that you have similar and indeed, in some cases, much stronger political forces, but you have effectively no institutional restraints that prevent a Chavez once in office from simply ignoring the written text because there aren't the strong const the constitutional institutions that are necessary to restrain power. Well, the work of the EGAD division, Nick's division, 
is involved heavily in legal assessment, and that's what these materials are all about in part. And it's assessing what's going on in these countries, trying to advise people in these countries, and certainly advising members of the U.S. government, AID, and other international donor groups on the issues, the legal issues in these countries. Now, those of you who teach, uh, who practice commercial law will find in looking at these materials that they are, from a lawyer's point of view, extremely basic. And that is what is largely needed in much of the world. On the other hand, what you might find most illuminating is actually the introduction to these materials, because I think it gives a better understanding of what some of the issues involved in, uh, here are. I don't know whether people are aware of it, but ultimately, in the end, when the Bush administration sold the CAFTA agreement, what it was arguing was security. It ultimately did not try to persuade on the grounds of economic benefits to the United States. It argued, in fact, that we had to do this because you had relatively weak states in Central America. There had been civil wars there before. If we expected that there would be any progress there and we would not have another mess on our doorstep, we had to do something. I know this in particular because Congressman Rodney Alexander from a sugar area in Louisiana was the lead Republican arguing to Republicans that they should vote for CAFTA as he was going to do against the desires of his sugar farmer constituents. Now, there are not that many people that are willing to go against strong elements in their constituency, but we have to understand how really important this is. And this effort here today, as Nick already mentioned, is designed to draw you in. And we would like to involve you not only in interaction here, but later on in the pro bono work that we're talking about. And I want to at least, before we get started, recognize Peggy Little, who's head of the Federalist Society pro bono effort. Peggy is here. And if you have an interest at all in any way cooperating and reviewing part of these materials, giving us your input, we would greatly appreciate it. And please, at the break, see Peggy about this. Well, turning now more specifically to our first panel on property rights, you know, I come at this from this point of view. It is wonderful to go out and have the United States enter into free trade agreements with other countries and ambassador talked about the difference between bilateral or multilateral as opposed to worldwide agreements. And he mentioned that in bilateral agreements, it is more likely or more possible to have an influence to changing things in the country. And that is precisely a point that is overlooked by many people. That is, the U.S. enters into very detailed agreements that essentially requires changes in other countries. And these changes often do not come easily in other countries. Right now in CAFTA, Costa Rica really hasn't completed the process, and so CAFTA really isn't up and running the way it's supposed to be. But if we can bring about some change, it is not only to the benefit of U.S. businesses, it is absolutely critical to these countries. If we are dealing with businesses in other countries and expect them to engage in trade, and yet, property rights in their country are not secure. And even when secure, if credit is not available or if it is too expensive, they will not be able to compete the way free market theory suggests they should be competing. 
And it is that sense of frustration often that allows the Chavez's of the world to argue that the benefits of free trade are not trickling down. Because often it's not a free trade issue. It is a legal structure issue in the country that doesn't allow the benefits to get through. Well, to address these problems, we have three speakers this morning, and I'm going to address, uh, introduce each one of them individually. Our first one is uh, Tom Jersel. Tom is um, special counsel at this point, or senior counsel, with Mayor Brown, Rowe, and Ma in the Chicago office. He's a retired partner. He had a general business practice, joint ventures, financing, project finance, mergers and acquisitions, etc. But during his practice, and especially since, he's been involved in projects around the world, often with AID, but also with World Bank and others, working with Booz Allen. And, and um, what he has experienced is uh, what he's going to bring to us today is a general overview of what the issues are. The solutions in various countries may be different, but the issues are by and large the, the same in many places. And Tom doesn't have any particular experience in Latin America, but he is going to talk to us about the principles of Hernando de Soto and what he sees as being their application in various countries around the world. Tom has also written uh, on, on uh, commercial law uh, subjects and, and has written in particular articles about um, the former Yugoslavian republics and the problems that he has encountered there. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, John. Uh, I am going to try to keep more to the nuts and bolts aspect of all of this, but I want to say at the beginning <clears throat> that you cannot overstress that it's essential to have a good property system as a condition for any successful economic or business development. You've got to have a system that is clear and predictable and understandable, that's not corrupt or too political, that's cheap to use, and that provides a, an environment for ownership, for selling or leasing, for using property in the sense of zoning and land use, and for using property as collateral for loans. I assume that everybody in this room knows that uh, and agrees. And I'm not going to dwell on the point except to say there is Holy Scripture on the subject, as John mentioned, and it's the books, the works of Fernando de Soto. They're available uh, at Barnes and Noble and Borders or wherever you want to go. And it sets all this out. And if you have any doubts on this subject or on, this, on the, the question of whether what USAID is doing is right in this area, read this book. I came, my own perspective comes from having had the privilege and the opportunity to be a part of four assessments that USAID has done in four countries. And I can say more at some point about how those assessments work and what's in them. They result in written reports that go on the website that Nick mentioned, and I'm going to repeat it again. It's bizlaw, B-I-Z, reform.com. And you can find out what we're saying, and it's a lot more than I'll say this morning. My own projects that I worked on were in Laos, Cambodia, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan. The first thing you notice when you go to those countries is that they are really different from the United States. 
And the second thing you notice right away also is that each one is unique and really different from the others, which means, I'll get into detail on that as we go along, but the basic point there is that at least half of the analysis and the work you do in these countries is drilling from the inside out and learning how things work and the attitudes and the institutions that are already there. The third thing you notice in these countries is that's different is that they have big social problems of the kind we hardly have a clue of at home. Uh, three of these countries have a history of recent war. Cambodia had the Khmer Rouge in which land titles were systematically destroyed for the sake of doing so and there were no land transactions taking place. Afghanistan had the Russians and then the warlords and then the Taliban exactly the same. There was systematic destruction of land registries, deeds, and uh, conveyance records, uh, and no transactions. Ethiopia, a little further back, had the communist Derg period in which, among other things, new companies couldn't be created. Uh, they also do politics in a different way in those countries. Uh, by that I mean there's, there tends to be more of it. And just as one anecdote, there is a really good land titling and registration program in Cambodia, which I'll talk about a little later. But we got into, when I visited them, they got into that issue and they said, well, you know, when we're mapping the land, the agricultural land and the farms and the plantations, we'll come every once in a while to a land dispute where one of the parties involved is just too powerful. And when that happens, we just leave that part of the map blank and move on. And the fact is they're still doing a lot of good, but they have that kind of a problem. Also, there's a lot of uh, land grabbing, warlord grant land grabbing. You find institutional sharecropping as a means of owning land that you have to deal with without hope of ownership on the part of the sharecroppers. You have poppy cultivation in Afghanistan, which represents something like 30% of the GDP. Uh, I know that's a public number. I'm not, it's, it's in that area. And that's a mainsta mainstay of the economy. And our little uh, project looked at how poppy cultivation works, how that land is owned and not owned, and I can go into that also. There's urban squatting. Uh, in Afghanistan, I counted 10 identifiable different types of so-called informal land ownership, and you'll find it written up in our report, uh, all untitled, all basically unsaleable, and certainly not mortgageable. There is a big issue of condemnation and expropriation, which isn't like it is here. You have issues of value or no value and uh, uh, how the condemnations take place. And incidentally, on that particular subject, there's a good USAID program in Ethiopia on setting procedures, trying to establish objective procedures and valuation methods for condemnations. Uh, there's a lot of, there are slowdowns, sit-downs, slowdowns, riots, mass protests. We saw that in two countries. And there's the whole issue of nomad versus pastoral agriculture, another one we're not familiar with here, but that you have to deal with when you're working in a country like that. 
Having given that rough, discouraging-sounding, maybe, description, let me now start talking like a lawyer, because lawyers are the group, or almost the group, the type of people who can do the most good in these situations. First of all, every country, at least everyone I've seen, surely 99% of those in the world, actually has a land law. Uh, and in many cases, they are very detailed and quite well drafted on paper. The law, just as such, the law on paper can help. Uh, for example, as where in Cambodia, it clearly states the right to private ownership of land, which they didn't have before. It can also hurt. Uh, many of the laws are, most of the laws, are over-detailed, and sometimes hopelessly confused on the subject of the regulatory authorities and what governmental body controls what, say, registration, land use, local, federal, national, and so on. And some of those, I think a good example of that is the Laotian law, uh, which is described in our write-up. Uh, any lawyer, any of you, looking at these laws would immediately say to yourself, give me a pencil because they can all use help, even the best of them. In Afghanistan, when I tried to look at that, their land law, I found 11 land laws dating back, still in effect, dating back to the imperial period, that's Haile Selassie's period, and going all the way through the years since, overlapping, leaving areas completely uncovered. That, there's work simply needed on law drafting, which is our craft. Actually, I should say in Afghanistan, there's another USAID project, uh, or a USAID project, which has been working with several ministries, the ministries of urban development, agriculture, and one other, justice, I think, and has developed an entirely new comprehensive land policy for the whole country. Uh, dealing with all the issues that I'm going to talk about with the idea that that will result in a new, unified, single land law for the country. That's a process that takes years. Now, as I say, you have to drill some to often or largely from the inside out, but it's the kind of good work that lawyers can do and that people like us can do. But then, of course, the law itself that's one thing, but it's nowhere near enough, and if all you have is a good law, you don't have much. I, I, in, in getting in on my way here, I identified six specific areas that I could talk about and that involve nuts and bolts work. First, I, I, I'll name them, but I won't talk about all of them right now. First is ownership of land. That is establishing ownership, titling it, mapping it, registering it and proving that you have it. Second is not ownership, but land use in the sense of zoning and permitting, such as building permits. That's just an immense problem in these countries, very political and a completely separate land issue from the ownership issue. Uh, third is they, ha they all, all these countries have a type, types of discrimination that you're not familiar with. For example, there are special, different rules when there's state ownership, and in all of them the state own, is a big owner. Uh, there are rules for local citizen ownership, different rules for foreigners. Many of them 
um, actually I think three of the four I'm talking about prohibit foreign ownership and how do you get around that and how does that slow business down uh, and they have customary entities and customary that for example there are rural communities tribal communities there are Islamic institutions uh, that uh, have their own different rules and and uh, operate differently you have to get into all that uh, fourth I, I, or I would list as another subject the, how do the markets work for from a practical point of view because you know all of these countries do have active economies not like us maybe but they have them and how do you get around how do you buy how do you sell can you get a mortgage are there brokers and real estate agents what do lawyers do how do you get around these laws the practical issues uh, fifth there's the subject of international and foreign projects such as project financing I'm sure many people in this room have worked on those how are they done? You know, when you do a big project, like a dam or a road, uh, you, can't, you can't deal with laws at all, like the ones I'm talking about. Well, how does that work? And a sixth subject is how do, land disputes. How do you solve those? Generally speaking, the courts are not considered useful. There are customary institutions that are often more respected and considered less corrupt. And then there is the question of how condemnations and takings are handled. Well, let me take one of those subjects. I, only, I, I have ten minutes only, and we can go into the others. But, Not ten minutes more. But, but, no, I just wanted to say, talk about the most, what I think is the most basic one, and that is ownership. How do you prove it? In these countries, in each of these countries, I found and interviewed a good project which is ongoing and is doing this. In Laos, there's a project run by AusAid, that's the Australian Foreign Aid, and GTZ, which is the German Foreign Aid Agency. In Cambodia, there's one run by GTZ and FinMap, the Finnish agency. In Ethiopia, there's a good program run by USAID, a contractor called ARD, and the Swedish agency, SIDA, S-I-D-A. And in Afghanistan, there's a terrific program uh, which has a good website. It's L-T-E-R-A is the, is the name of it, L-T-E-R-A. Uh, and if you really want to know what happens in these projects, I can't recommend anything more strongly than to look at their website. I don't have the address, but Google would pick it up. And what these, what these people do, and each one of them has got more than 100 employees, and they take years, they literally locate and clean old property records. They literally help with the physical construction of recording offices. They have training programs for local personnel who don't know a deed from a mortgage from sometimes a hole in the ground and need training. They do surveying, surveying GPS, uh, aerial surveying, local surveying. They establish a specific law setting up a title uh, proof method, usually they use either the Torrens system uh, or cadastral system, European type cadastral systems and finally they take care of dispute settlement because whenever you try to settle titles to land the first time or after a break of 30 years you have disputes and that means getting into court 
It means arranging mediation by village chiefs. Certainly in Laos and Cambodia, they're more used, they're, they are looked to more than the courts, or the so-called shuras in the Islamic countries. Um, I just want to emphasize that this is grunt work. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time, but it, there's almost nothing more important than the nuts and bolts of establishing good property title. And as to these other subjects, I, I'm going to hold on to them as possible questions or talking later, including there's another subject, and that is the subject of uh, what do you do about all this and how do you solve all these problems and who should do it. Thank you. Tom mentioned that all of this can sound very discouraging, and then he went on to say what lawyers can do. Well, I'm happy to say that we have something encouraging to present to you. Tom was talking on the global picture, which can be somewhat overwhelming, but uh, we want to focus on one particular country in Latin America for our next speaker, and that is Honduras. One of the great pleasures of working with AID and going to Central America was meeting some wonderful young people, and top on that list is Octavio Sanchez. Octavio... Um, was at the time advisor to the president of Honduras and minister of culture. And Octavio was the force behind pushing through a new land law in that country. Uh, before that, he was uh, first in his class at the National Autonomous University of Honduras. He went on to get an LLM at Harvard, and as he says, he loves America. We need more people in Latin America who love America and who have the smarts that this young man has to be able to translate uh, those principles into the local law, and that's absolutely critical. Since then, Octavio has had contact and worked with the uh, Atlas Foundation, and he is currently a fellow at the National Law Center for Inter-American Free Trade at the University of Arizona, and by the way, that is a group uh, you'll hear more about because we have another speaker from there, and they are one of the le really the leading organization dealing with um, the implementation of trade agreements from the private sector, university sector, in in this hemisphere. So, Octavio, please join us and tell us about Honduras. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> When, uh, when we arrived uh, to government in January of 2002, basically we were a group that by accident had become involved in politics. Most of us were part of the private sector. Uh, personally, I was uh, the advisor to the largest financial group in the country, and we understood that we needed to do something to change uh, the country, and one of the things that we tried to do was to change the property regime of Honduras. And um, to do that, uh, we began to study what had happened before us in Honduras and outside the country. One of the things that we found was that uh, of uh, rule of law. Unfortunately, none of them did anything to change that. Basically, uh, what you find uh, all over uh, the place in Latin America is that uh, what they did was to create uh, rules uh, and uh, pass laws that basically change 
the control of land that had been held by by the church into private hands and uh, when that happened basically they sold themselves uh, land uh, to each other so uh, the second thing that you find is that besides that uh, russian way of uh, of privatizing land that they created Back then, the second thing that they understood was that you needed to give a, a stake on the property system to the smallholders of land. And they launched several efforts. None of them was, uh, was successful. And uh, in the case of Honduras, you have, uh, when we did the reform in 2004, until then you had had... 12 different efforts to try to change the system and because we understood that we tried to do something that was completely different and uh, we understood two things out of uh, the previous experience that Honduras had had the first one was that all those efforts run out of two things very easily out of political will first and the second thing is out of money so the only way in which we could create a, a reform that could uh, be sustainable in time was to hand control of the system to the civil society. And basically, the approach that we follow is very different from the one that Hernando de Soto is follow is uh, trying to sell all over Latin America and all over the world. It, it is not based on, on handing out uh, titles property titles, it is based on changing the rules of the system. I don't know if you know this, but uh, there are, uh, you can find four different property models all over the world. The first one was created by the Romans. It is entirely based on uh, adverse possession of things. It's a very short adverse possession, just two years. If you had been uh, using a, a piece of property for two years, you are protected. The second model is uh, the British model that it's, uh, you know it better than anyone, it's uh, entirely based on, on protecting users of things, although in the US it's also based in, in protecting the holder of a title. Uh, in the case of the US, at least 50% of the, of the land is not registered to this day, and people have uh, access to, to credit and they are protected as if they have a title. In the case of France, which is the other model, uh, the Code de Napoleon issued in 1804 is based on protecting possession. Uh, if you have been using uh, a thing and if you have a piece of land and if you have been paying your taxes, you are allowed to, to, to have a, a right to, to mortgage that piece of property and to be protected, you have another system, which is the, the German system, that, that is based on the idea that the valuable thing, what has value to the property, is the title, the piece of paper. It's uh, based on, on uh, an idea that the Germans had on how to bridge uh, a feudal model of property with uh, the requirements of, uh, of a modern society. In that system, besides the title, what is important is to grant protection to the mortgage. The mortgage is the king of all rights. And based on that comparative work that we did, 
we created a model that it's uh, different and that tries to, to take elements uh, of all those four systems that, that I mentioned. Uh, back in 2002, when we arrived uh, in government, uh, what we found was that 86% uh, of all the properties in the country were not protected by our system. Our system was based on, on the German model. It was copied from the, from the Chilean code, civil code, that it was a copy from an early version of, of the German Grundbuch. In, in that system, what we had was that if you had a registered title, you couldn't have adverse possession against that registered title, even if you had been in possession of, uh, of a piece of, of land for, for hundreds of, of years. Uh, the problem with that system is that as long as if you have a piece of paper, you are protected. Uh, and uh, in the case of Honduras, that created a lot of problems. Basically, in urban, in urban areas, there, there, there were a lot of disputes because uh, it was really easy to produce a title, a piece of paper, uh, uh, that was not linked to the use of things. So uh, there were cases and cases uh, around the country of this happening. One of the most uh, critical ones uh, was in the, in the area of San Pedro Sula. In the case, it's called Cofradia. In that community, you had 140 different titles, ownership titles over the, over the land that was occupied by this community. Uh, you had, had a, an ongoing dispute to determine which was the valid title for back then 162 years. The problem began in 1840, and it hadn't been resolved in the year 2004. Uh, basically, what we did was first we decided to create one institutionality to handle all the issues related with uh, property rights. We created something that was called uh, the Instituto de la Propiedad. Um, the Instituto de la Propiedad, basically, it, it was designed to be a, a regulatory institution of the work that privates will do to solve the problem of uh, property rights of, or land tenancy and several other issues. The, um, in that uh, Instituto de la Propiedad, we put together the, all the registries of the country, the cadaster of the country, and uh, we created a new office that was in charge of uh, what we call regular, regularization, which is regularizing the property rights of the people. And uh, we enacted five different sets of rules to solve the five most common problems that we found in, in Honduras. And uh, basically, those problems were the following one. First, the problem that uh, in most cities since colonial times, uh, what people had was not a fee simple right over the land that they, 
that they occupied, but most of them, what they had was a right of use. The problem with the, that right of use was that under our laws, you couldn't negotiate that line, that uh, right of use. So we changed that. The second thing that we did was to enact a set of rules to solve problems such as the one that I described priorly, the one of uh, that community in which you had a, 140 different titles and 100 different persons claiming to be the owners of, of that, uh, that piece of land. Uh, third parties were the ones that had been using that, that property for, for many years. So uh, the, the rule that we enacted is based on dividing the problem in two. One is the economic problem that all those, all these persons that claim to be the owners want to receive a payment from the persons that are living in, in the land. And um, the, second, the second element of the problem is that you need to grant some form of protection to the persons that are using the land so that they can turn their, their possession into an economic asset. Uh, and we did that by doing a taking. I know that a taking, it's not the most uh, capitalistic and, and uh, market and pro-market way to solve a problem. But in this case, it was the only way in which it could be solved. It, it could be done. It, uh, you had to start from scratch, once again. Uh, the third solution, that, uh, the third rule that we, we enacted was one that deals with uh, solving the land tenancy dispute over land that is held by ethnic groups. Uh, in our country, it's 7% uh, of the population belongs to these ethnic groups, so we needed to create a special set of rules to protect them while we were doing this. Uh, the fourth uh, problem that is, uh, you can find all, all over Latin America, basically the same problems you will find, is uh, a set of rules to put an end to land that was held in common by private parties. The problem that we were facing was that uh, during colonial times and uh, in the early years of uh, our independent life, really large tracts of land were given away uh, to private individuals. But the problem was that uh, when these individuals died, their heirs didn't divide among themselves the land. So when you are in the six or seven or 10 generation, you don't know who is in control or who is entitled to, to have a, 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 a piece of ownership, a stake of ownership over that land. So we devised a set of rules to, to solve that. And uh, the fifth rule that uh, we enacted was uh, a rule to, to allow, uh, to put an end to this fact that I told you that you, you didn't have adverse possession over land that was registered. So we allowed that to happen. We tried to reduce the terms uh, required for adverse possession, but we were un unable. That was one of the things in which we failed. Currently, it's only 20, it's 20 years. But at least yeah, we wanted to reduce that to, to the, the term used by the Romans, which, which was only two years, but we were unable. 
but at least now you're able to become an owner if you have been in possession of a piece of land that is private uh, and someone else has a, regist a registered title over it. And um, how successful we were, uh, the first success that we had was being able to enact the law in, in a developing country in which uh, most of the wealth is based on, on ownership of land, it is extremely difficult to enact such changes. And it is especially difficult if what you are trying to do is to create a, a completely new and different set of rules for, to create a land market. Uh, the second thing in which uh, I believe that we were successful was in transferring part of the control of the, of the property system to, to the civil society. Uh, some of the registers of the registries now in Honduras are managed either by the Chamber of Commerce or, or by other organizations, and they are extremely efficient at doing that, that allow the country to reduce uh, uh, the time that it takes to register companies and to to register transactions over land uh, in a very significant way the the third uh, the third thing in which I believe we were successful is in in using these rules that we enacted in practice uh, in uh, the law was enacted in two thousand and four by two thousand and five at least uh, a million persons had been benefited by the, by the law. Uh, we did 162 takings. Those 162 takings benefited uh, at least half a million persons. The other rules, uh, the other rule that was enacted that was also very important and benefited at least uh, another half a million persons was the one uh, based on on turning the right of use into a, a fee simple right, a fee simple title. And uh, unfortunately, most of the process has been stopped by the, by the new government. Uh, however, we have an advantage that uh, uh, Congress, uh, is the control of Congress in Honduras is split. My party, the party that I belong to, controls half of it, the party in government controls the other half. So at least there is no effort to, to, to change things or to, or, to bring the, the, or, to, or to bring down the law that we passed. Uh, contrary to that, even though the, the reform to the real estate uh, property system has been halted, we have been able to come to an agreement on other issues that we consider important for us. We negotiated with them uh, the passing of a secure transaction law, which, is, uh, which has been drafted, and I think that uh, by the end of this year will be passed. The second thing that we agree was also the passing of a law to enable the securitization of assets, which is uh, something that we consider important for us. Uh, the third thing on which we have an agreement is uh, on the government support for uh, the creation of uh, uh, an exchange market, an electronic exchange market for uh, commodities, uh, which, by the way, uh, this coming May the 3rd, we are going to hold a meeting 
to form the first working groups on that on, in Tucson, Arizona, in the in the National Law Center. And um, basically, that is where we stand, and uh, that's what uh, we began to do or, or try to do in, in Honduras with our property reform. Thank you. In the materials you've been given on page 17, there's a little blurb about Honduras. Octavio uh, has continues his work. Uh, he's founded a nonprofit organization to assist uh, people with property rights in Honduras. And while at the National Law Center, you're writing a book. Uh, mm -hmm. wh what is the subject of the book again? Uh, on property systems and uh, credit access. As you can see from his description of the different property systems, uh, it's not as simple as it is in much of the United States. And uh, it takes a lot of work, as you've heard from both of our first two speakers. Our uh, third speaker, Ann Simmons-Benton, is uh, working on this with Booz Allen, and she and I are charged with um, going over the larger publication from which these materials that you've received today are drawn. And in the table of contents, it shows you all the different commercial law subjects, and this is our focus, at least initially, in seeking pro bono work is to have you, those of you who are interested, look at whatever area here falls within your area of practice or expertise and give us your comments. Of course, we're not only seeking the American viewpoint, but we certainly want very strongly the American viewpoint. And it often comes into conflict with other viewpoints that dominate around the world. And as Octavio has just related to us, when you have a system that is very confused or complicated by history and various efforts, it's, it's uh, a rather a major effort to try to untangle that mess and create some sort of rational system. Ann Simmons-Benton uh, now, as I said, is with Booz Allen, but before that uh, she was with USAID. Uh, she is a lawyer who works, has worked for a long time in international development. Um, she had worked at USAID with uh, developing countries in terms of their admission to the World Trade Organization and also in working with um, development of uh, commercial and trade legislation in those countries. Prior to that, uh, she worked with the U.S. Commerce Department, again working on commercial codes. Currently, as I said, she's working on this manual uh, for this project and She's living in Ireland, where her husband is a Foreign Service officer. And Anne's going to talk to us uh, about her perspective from the donor agencies, we'll call them, and their contractors. And also, at some point, we'll have her talk to you a little bit more about the manual. Anne? Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here today uh, in front of lawyers, because I think lawyers play an incredible role. Having lived overseas, I want to let you know that I am very proud of the United States. I am proud because the United States really has the premier development assistance throughout the world. And in particularly in this field, in the field of commercial law, USAID is known throughout the world for this. 
and why? The intellectual capital we have as lawyers in the United States. I'd like to go and sort of talk about and reiterate some clear principles that we've heard today throughout. And partially because we're interested in causality, I think we need to focus on these for what we're talking about in this discussion. Clear property rights and enforceable contracts, two of the main areas we work with, are generally preconditions for market-based economic activity. Ownership rights and property, they're important for two reasons, to access the value of property in its primary role, housing, business, farming, but also for its secondary role as collateral for consumer or commercial credit. And you will hear about that in the second panel. So I wanted to make the link to that today. The ability to use real property and personal property as security for loans is critical to economic growth. And economic growth is important for poverty alleviation in developing countries. And this brings us back to some of the goals of the United States, whether it's humanitarian or whether it's security. But we need to look at these areas. And also, our property law reform is a fundamental building block for commercial law reform that's important to developing countries as well as it is to the U.S. companies who invest there. One area that hasn't been mentioned today, but I would consider it one of the key areas, again, is gender equality in this particular field. For in many societies still, women's access to ownership and control of property is limited and skews the economic growth there. While as lawyers, we are keenly interested in legislative framework and drafting new laws that help to create ownership and the ability to transfer property, there are also processes that we must take into consideration. As um, uh, Octavia mentioned, it's not just laws alone, and Tom uh, talked about that as well. Doing Business 2007, a publication by the World Bank that USAID also works with, has pointed out that there are two most effective ways to reform the property registration phase. If you think back to Calvin Coolidge, he also said that it's more important to get rid of bad laws than to pass good ones. One of the areas that's most important is cut unnecessary procedures. This is effective even without a large investment in technology. And I'd like to give you an example of a Cote d'Ivoire, where in that particular country, in order for a property transaction to be processed, you had to seek permission from the urban uh, minister every time. So in 2005, a reform minister in Cote d'Ivoire managed to make a reform, cutting the time from 397 days over a year to process a property transaction to just 32 days. As lawyers, those are things we need to look at as well. In Gambia, it took 18 signatures for a title to property and payment, uh, and payment was needed along the way. So when you go to register something, it's not just processing the deed of trust. You have to go and get those 18 signatures and fees that are a little bit more informal than we have in our system. So by cutting unnecessary procedures, it not only speeds things up, but it decreases corruption. The second area that they pointed out was an effective way to reform property registration phase is to cut costs. This again goes to the fact that the informal transactions we just talked about, corruption, and also leads to underreporting of property values. When you have high costs, actually governments lose revenue and property owners lose security of title. 
So ultimately, by cutting costs, governments recoup revenue by reasonable fields. What were the most popular reforms in 2005 and 2006? Most countries took the opportunity to decrease taxes or fees. Other countries expedited procedures in the registries. These countries were Botswana, Croatia, El Salvador, Kuwait, Mali, and Nigeria. Next area, computerizing the registry and making online procedures possible. Of course, when you do this, you really have to look at the country and make sure that there are certain infrastructure there. Croatia, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Spain were the countries that worked on this. And again, as I mentioned, combined and eliminated procedures. There was Armenia, Cote d'Ivoire, and Nigeria. In addition to the examples we've heard today, I thought I'd take you from the beginning through a successful case to let you see exactly what's involved because it's not just the laws that are involved. It's the procedures, it's the country, it's many other things. I'm going to talk to you about Georgia. In 2004, the new Georgian government, elected following the Rose Revolution, initiated reforms to establish a self-financing, streamlined mechanism to provide secure and stable land property rights. The result of this has been the establishment of a new independent registry called the National Agency of the Public Registry, which in 2006 for the first time was a fully self-financing entity responsible for land registration throughout the country. This first phase of reform included drafting new legislation, was conducted in stages, and required 10 months to complete. Tax reforms accompanied this, supported by the growing private sector, included the abolition of 2% property tax, property registration fees, defined clearly in the new legislation, have risen slightly under the new self-financing model, and an escalated pay scheme for express service has been installed. By actually streamlining the processes of the new registry, clarifying the legislation, and virtually eliminating corruption, however, the overall effect has been to reduce the real costs and times required to register property. Like other reforms in Georgia, property registration reform cannot be analyzed outside the context of sweeping political changes associated with the Rose Revolution, which allowed for whole institutional change, new legislation, and new management that would not have been possible under the former administration. You can see that political will was the impetus of the reform. The priorities for land registration reform were consistent with the objectives of the new administration's broader reform program, which extended nearly across all sectors of governance. This is the things that the development agencies do overseas. They look for those opportunities and the catalysts and the time to make those possible reforms. When we look at this, what were the factors for the success of these reforms? That Rose Revolution, it provided the framework to implement political changes not otherwise possible. International funding and technical support played an important role in the reforms. In this particular example, the U.S. was there as well as other donors, and there was donor collaboration, which is not always so easy in these countries. So in this particular example, they've worked very well together to do this. They had contributions including study tours to bring people to actually see other countries and how they worked, and targeted international expertise including the idea of the development of financial sustainability. 
the idea that after the donors left, that that institution they built had a self-financing mechanism so it could live on after it was key to the survival. And also financial support for local organizations because those organizations would need to carry the burden. But what else? In this particular case, again, Georgian leadership was important. As one insider described the process, most of the individual participants in the reform process wanted to make a system work for Georgia, not necessarily demand that their organization's model be transposed directly. And this is one of the problems that we see throughout the world when you're trying to make a change, is that perhaps the Minister of Agriculture wants to have their organization be premier or the Ministry of Trade. But when the country is, 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 discusses this, finds that it has a common goal, it works with the international community, then you have a successful reform. And the result in this case was a Georgian model that fit the Georgian context. It drew on the experience from another, a number of countries, but a model was developed that took into account the following aspects of Georgian reality. Increased financial resources were required, hence the self-financing entity. The small geographic size allowed for a centralized information collection and registry system. Low technology, low IT, those levels demanded a simple documentation process and poor infrastructure, poor roads, electricity outages, and no postal system demanded that services remain available locally. And in addition to that, there was sustained leadership at all the different responsible organizations that provided consistent, stable framework for policy. And that was particularly significant in Georgia, as it is in many other countries, because when a new, uh, uh, a new party takes over and there are elections, often entire ministries or large parts of that are replaced. So the fact that there was sustained leadership on this issue helped to carry through. I have a couple, another, another example here, but I'm thinking that we might use our time a little more wisely since we've had so many great examples today. And um, I just want to point out from the example that I was going to use uh, in Moldova that one of the different aspects of that particular program that I found was um, very important in helping it to carry through was that in addition to some of the reforms I've just talked about, that that project included a component of public education. Because we have to remember that while we're doing this, if the, all the different reforms, that ultimately the stakeholders every day need to buy into that. And in that particular one, they had a public education vehicle called the Farmer's Hour Publication, which they delivered to all the villages to talk about the land reform for agriculture and um, for housing, which um, I think was a very interesting way to make sure you cover all your bases. But the um, opportunities for pro bono lawyers to participate in historic change and to do so in a way that benefits the U.S. and developing countries and countries in tradition um, transition are key. And I understand here that, that we're going to have members who may be interested in making comments uh, on the commercial law and microeconomic reform guide. And I appreciate that, and I'll be working with you and with John to do that. I want you to know that the purpose of that publication, um, it, you know, when you, when you look at it, is to give development officers in the field and foreign affairs officers a rudimentary understanding of the issue. 
because they have to go out there and cover a lot of different territory. And I really appreciate your assistance. Other opportunities for lawyers to look at this um, and participate in the process are, of course, reviewing and drafting legislation, drafting policy advice, analyzing and streamlining processes, again, helping to cut out some of those unnecessary laws and regulations, providing sample documents and templates akin to a form book or looking at standard deeds of trust, and providing subject matter expertise on these technical areas. I have to tell you, when I was first in a law firm in Virginia and I was looking at some of the things that ABA Sealy had to comment on draft laws, and I was thinking, oh, this is kind of a cool idea. I'd, I'd love to comment, and so I got the law and commented on it, sort of in this little venue way. I never anticipated that I'd be in Moscow during incredible changes and really being able to participate, working with the AmCham to pull together a bunch of lawyers to comment for the very first time on legislation that went to the Duma. So in many ways, the intellectual capital we have in this room is a key part of our foreign policy, and any way we can capture it to move forward I think is great. So thank you. Before we take your questions and comments, I need to ask Dean, when would you like us to break so we can do the room change? Quarter of or? Okay. So, okay. Very good. During the question and, and answer period or comment period, feel free also to ask either Tom or Ann uh, anything specific about some of these opportunities since Ann has already uh, presented them. Um, but before we, uh, I take particular questions, I want to recognize Oscar Garibaldi from Covington and Burley because uh, we had a little exchange ahead of time. Oscar is going to be on our panel, one of our panels on the next program. And uh, there is this issue that I've mentioned a couple of times that I don't think really comes clearly across to common law trained lawyers about the just as you have cultural conflicts, there is a legal cultural conflict. You heard a little bit of, about it from Octavio, but otherwise this has basically been an American viewpoint that you've heard here. And the reality is that in these trade agreements and in interchanged cross-border transactions, there are two different perspectives. And it is important to understand those on the other side, and I understand a little bit better having served on a faculty that's half and half in terms of civil law, common law. It's not just a matter of North Americans culturally imposing our viewpoint. There's also the question for civil law trained lawyers who often have the viewpoint that the civil law is superior to the common law. I know that many of my colleagues and our faculty firmly believe this. That, this, that the common law is still in the early stages of development, whereas the civil law has advanced well beyond this. And certainly from an academic point of view, in terms of the logic of the civil law, it is intellectually more satisfying. On the other hand, there is also the question of formalism. So there is much to be learned, and that's the viewpoint I've taken, from both systems, because the reality is that over time, trade will produce a common law. Indeed, when our nation was formed, there was the law merchant, which existed well into the 19th century. If you remember Swift versus Tyson, which Erie overruled and called unconstitutional. 
Justice Story talked about the law merchant that governs commercial transactions. And this was not the law of a state. This was the law developed by merchants. And what we are seeing is the reemergence of law merchant around the world. And this can be discomforting to people, but I can tell you that having lived in Louisiana, when you bring two legal cultures together, you have the same effect as you get when you get fresh water and salt water come together. You get brackish water. You get a combination. It's not going to be purely common law, and it's not going to be purely civil law. There has to be a mixture. It is totally unavoidable. But I want to hear from Oscar about uh, his viewpoints regarding the civil law and the intrusion of the common law. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure that I'm going to address exactly that gen general point. Uh, but by way of introduction, um, <clears throat> I am a fully trained lawyer in both the civil law and the common law systems. I have taught public international law, and I have practiced uh, in uh, international matters in Latin America for over 30 years. And most of what I do every day is to represent clients in disputes against Latin American governments. So from that perspective, I have, I'd like to make a, a three uh, quick points. The first one is that uh, I agree and in many cases wholeheartedly with uh, almost everything that has been said so far by the various panels and by my former partner, John Bolton. Um, and I am saying also this from the perspective of a long, uh, my perspective as a long-standing member of the uh, Federalist Society. The, I, I would like to introduce a note of caution uh, uh, though in, uh, in this discussion that we are having about uh, uh, law reform in Latin America. Uh, and that is uh, something that is, uh, would be obvious to any Latin American lawyer, and that is that the legal traditions of Latin American law, which has Roman roots, uh, will have to be taken into account in any attempt at reform. And by taking into account, I mean taking into account very seriously. And that means not only the traditions of the particular system that is, seeks to be reformed, but also the traditions of systems of the same, in the same legal tradition, and in, including the experience of uh, developed countries of the same legal tradition in Europe. Uh, and just to give an example, it seems inconceivable to me that we can persuade a Latin American country to adopt the American system of property rights, which is based on English feudal common law, uh, with all of its enormous complexities, including the rule against perpetuities, uh, on top of uh, adopt that instead of the system based on Roman law, which is uh, based on a completely different concept, which is that of a, called numerus clausus, a, a limited number of rights in REM. So uh, if you're going to, re to reform uh, property rights, you do that at the margins, the way that uh, Octavio Sanchez has described, 
or you do that by, by introducing with care institutions that are compatible. But I don't think that a wholesale replacement of property rights system or any other system would work. That's my first point. My second point is that uh, I, I have been arguing for a long time uh, that there is a dire need for protection of property rights and the rule of law in Latin America. I entirely agree with what uh, has been said about it. However, if someone asked me uh, how high on the list of uh, issues uh, law reform was in the issues of in, in, the, in the path of going of uh, given the goal of increasing the rule of law and the protection of property rights in Latin America if someone had asked me well how high on the list of priorities is, is legal reform I would have thought that not very high up I think that there are far other things that are far more urgent than, than reforming legal institutions and uh, among them complying with those that exist, uh, reducing corruption, getting rid of uh, useless institutions like excessive regulation and so on. Um, I don't want to monopolize the discussion, so I'm going to add just one brief point, and that, which has not been mentioned yet, and I hope that it will be mentioned in the course of this uh, discussion and uh, or uh, next uh, next conference, and that is the protection of foreign investment through international law. Uh, the point was made here that uh, <clears throat> one of the purposes of our free trade agreements uh, with Latin American countries is to, uh, is to require changes in their laws and their legal behavior. Well, that, all, that, is, uh, that is correct and that is well and good. But uh, I think that we have to recognize that in the latest round of free trade agreements and in the latest round of uh, bilateral investment treaties, the United States, unfortunately, has lowered the uh, standard of protection of property rights and contract rights, which it used to have uh, under prior models, and it has done so uh, in response to the, as a com political compromise, in response to the demands of the Democrats in, uh, in Congress, uh, and as mandated by the uh, Trade Promotion Authority law. So these are unfortunate uh, 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 events that uh, we have to recognize and take into account, because at one point, at one, uh, on the one hand, we are promoting uh, higher standards of protection of property rights, while at the same time, we are lowering uh, the bar that, uh, that we ourselves uh, imposed for, uh, in our, our treaties. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. A couple of points. What, when you mention uh, foreign direct investment, corruption, and getting rid of institutions, at least to me, all of that's included within legal reform. Indeed. The fourth pillar, which I consider the critical one, having to do with conflict resolution, really brings you into the constitutional structure. And the real problem, not only in Latin America but throughout the world, has to do with their failed constitutions. And with their failed constitutions, you have failed states. And as was indicated by Octavio, 
On the one hand, in a weak state, it's relatively easy to get something through. I know he mentioned that there were difficulties, but the idea that you could get through in one term a major overhaul of property rights in a country is just astounding. But the downside of it is the next administration can, depending on political forces, possibly undo it. And that is due to weak institutions, and those institutions are tied to the Constitution. Now, it is especially resented if the United States goes in and tinkers with the Constitution. And much of this really has to be done lawyer to lawyer, law professor to law professor, in order to bring this about. And I fully agree that one has to respect, and that's why I asked you to speak about it, the Roman law tradition. Very few American lawyers understand anything about the Roman law tradition and how very different it is. And we have to realize that these are issues that, by and large, American lawyers simply don't take into account. So the, the floor is open for questions, comments. This has been rather tame here. May I disagree? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never been on a fellow society panel that was with so little disagreement, so please. Okay. Well, I, I would like to disagree with, uh, with that emphasis that I, I hear here in the United States that the common law and the civil law are so different that uh, that is one of the reasons why Latin America is poor and the U.S. is, is a richer society. I believe that both uh, the common law and what is currently called uh, the civil law have their origins in Roman law. Basically, what, uh, what happened in, in Great Britain was that uh, after the Romans left uh, the, the island, the first Anglo-Saxon kings that came to control a part of the island, the first thing they did was to translate the Corpus Juris Civilis, which was uh, the, the first uh, compilation of Roman law, into Anglo-Saxon. And basically, they changed the way in which uh, several of those uh, Roman institutions were called. And uh, later, when, uh, when uh, the Tudors came into power, the lawyers that uh, helped Henry II to create the, the common law courts, what they did was uh, take a lot of the elements from the Roman law and began to use that in, in the in the adjudication processes inside England. So for, for me, at least, there's not uh, a big difference. Uh, and uh, the second thing that I, I would like to, to point is that, at least myself, I believe that we do have something that is uh, similar to the rule uh, against perpetuities uh, all over Latin America in the 19th century when you put an end to what was called the capellanias and, uh, and uh, fideicomisos. What you were enacting were rules that did the same thing that the 1535 uh, Statue of Uses enacted by Henry VIII did. So basically, there are not many differences between both systems. Uh, for me, the, the main difference is who controls the system. In Latin America, governments control the system. In the U.S., you have a balance of power. It's a mixture of uh, entrepreneurs, of uh, the civil society, and the government. Basically, what the government does is adjudicates disputes when they are present. Uh, the registries are controlled by, by municipalities. 
But the real, the real market makers are, are private parties. You have bankers, you have real estate agents, you have title insurance companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And at least for me, that is one of the things that we lack. And uh, the second, uh, one of the last thing that I would like to point out is that I believe that what you have told here, it is true that uh, if you have uh, to choose what to do, I think that a reform to the land. Uh, system is uh, the second thing that you should do. The first thing is to allow a commercial revolution to be done in Latin America. But I think that that's the model that every European nation followed, that what happened first was a, a commercial revolution. That commercial revolution allowed uh, many merchants to accumulate enough wealth. When they had that wealth, they went to buy the land from the traditional landowners. And that was what began to to change the the balance of powers inside those societies, and that's what I wanted to point out. Thank you. Thank you, Octavio. Nick, uh, I just wanted to make a, a general comment, maybe ask uh, uh, Octavio a question too. But um, I just wanted to bring this kind of real. Um, what we're trying to do at USAID when we're working with property is not just go out and try to, you know, implement a better property system for the sake of having a nice system that works and functions well. Uh, what we're behind is something called transformational development. I think most individuals in this room may not be aware of too much of what our agency's mission is, but when most people think about foreign aid, they think, oh, it's food assistance, helping people out of poverty, uh, uh, maybe it's health issues, there's a global HIV-AIDS effort. But what we're after, at least in the EGAP Bureau, is achieving this uh, transformational development. That is, can we work at the macro policy level doing things like legal reform, uh, macroeconomic uh, reform, so that you, know, you have a stable currency and, and other things, uh, opening up uh, trade barriers that might have existed with high tariff walls, so that a country can become more competitive. And the internal processes, like the property registration, can you bring the cost of that down so people will actually you know, formally register their property? And why would that be important? That is that they can get the mortgages and the collateral so they can invest in their businesses. There's a third aspect I just want to add something to what Ann said. There, there's actually a third element also about why property registration is so important, and that is people invest in their property if they know that they have the rights to it. Um, Wade Channel, uh, he'll be speaking at a, on, on a different panel, but uh, he visited Ethiopia. And Tom, maybe you, I think you went to Ethiopia too. And, uh, you know, in countries where people are not clear that they actually own something or if the state might take it away from them or some hooligans might take it away from them, why should they invest and put in, you know, uh, maybe uh, three years' worth of their uh, earnings uh, to improve that property if they know it might be taken away? And that becomes very important if you're a farmer uh, or somebody else that works the land or maybe you, you rent out space in an office building. I mean, all, all sorts of different things. But, you know, uh, just kind of bringing this back now to, to Oscar, uh, what do you think the economic growth aspects of the reforms will be for your country, you know, introducing these new things? Um, we talked about common law, civil law. Maybe there's not too much of a difference to it. But do you think that there will be big economic growth implications from these changes that you've uh, accomplished? Yeah. First, uh, what I believe is that what creates wealth is not the property reform per se. Uh, I think that what does is that it brings uh, stability into a society. The problem is that 
most of these persons uh, live uh, in a constant threat. They don't know when they are going to be thrown out of, uh, of the piece of uh, property in which they live in. Uh, the second thing that you have to accept is that most of the persons that are benefited by these reforms are not risk takers. They are not going to go and uh, pledge the property they own uh, to get a mortgage. That happens rarely. Uh, but it, for me, the economic value of, uh, of such a reform is that it changes the balances of powers inside of the societies. What you have to be clear about what you are doing is that you are fracturing the status quo, which is, at least from my standpoint, is what is basic, uh, what is uh, basic for a capitalist system to, to take uh, hand of what you need to, to have our entrepreneurs that, that uh, make what Schopenhauer called uh, the creative destruction, that uh, business persons and companies come uh, and go into markets because uh, uh, someone comes with a really great idea and is able to, to break down the control that uh, an old company has uh, over a certain type of market. And uh, that can only be done if uh, you have a society in which people expect and are treated as equals. And I think that that is one of the things that this type of reforms enables a society to achieve because finally everyone is protected. But Every time I listen to Octavio, I look forward to when he runs for president of Honduras. <laughs> yes. Um, Wade Channel from USAID. I wanted to uh, throw out a question based on DeSoto, but following Octavio's last point, um, should you happen over to the room next to us during a break and they still have these studies out there? Mercata Center has put out a fascinating study on the impact of land titling in South Africa, which ex echoes exactly what Octavio said. Land titling doesn't lead to increased credit. It leads to increased investment in your own property because poor people don't want to risk losing their land. So there's not been a net increase in, in loans based on, on uh, titling, but there has been a net increase in wealth. Uh, of investment and uh, various things that come with that. But my, my question, and I, I will throw out a question uh, based on Hernando de Soto's observations that I've never heard anyone disagree with. Um, in one of the chapters of Mystery of Capital, he points out that the lawyers are the biggest problem uh, standing in the way of making changes. Uh, we are here to discuss how lawyers cannot be the problem. Uh, he points out that the lawyers, def as, as defenders of our clients, we defend the status quo. We work within a system. If the system is unjust, as defenders of our clients, we continue to uphold the unjust system. If the as system is ineffective, we continue to uphold it. Um, how do we push beyond our naturally incentivized um, obstinance to change? and move toward reforming for a greater overall impact. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds like your class. Okay. <laughs> Most of the opposition against what we were trying to do in Honduras came from the legal industry. It was 
the Supreme Court that had control for 120 years, uh, the registries of the country, the public notaries that uh, knew that they were going to be affected by the reform because one of the things that we were doing was opening the doors for the use of standardized forms instead of the instrumento publico notarial. Uh, Does everybody understand about the notaries and how they make their money? Doesn't sound like you better explain. The biggest obstacle, one the biggest obstacle we found was the notaries, namely the lawyer notaries and the fees they're charging, as a major obstacle to uh, progress. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. But uh, in the case of Honduras, and I think that uh, it, this is what you can find in every society that is doing this type of changes, is that the legal industry will never support this. You will have to do it against their will. Uh, that has been the case in England when, when Henry VIII uh, broke, uh, began to break down the, the feudal property system with the Statute of Uses, the Statute of Wills, and, and other statutes that he passed. Uh, that was the case of Australia when they enacted the, the torrent system. That was the case of France when they did, they passed the Civil Code of uh, 1804. That was the case of, of Germany. Uh, Germany discussed so that reform for for more than a hundred years. It was and also they the never came to an agreement. It was they it was passed uh, without a consensus. So, so you have to understand that you will never be able to get the legal industry to back these reforms. You just need really good presidents, really good political leaders that are that understand why these things are have to be done and basically get them done. Well, maybe that's why in the U.S. it was different. It was a lawyer, Alexander Hamilton, who fought and put these reforms through. Yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Charles Schwartz with USAID, and uh, I got back a few weeks ago from uh, from an assessment in the Philippines, which is not yet on the website, but hopefully soon will be. Uh, and I wanted to comment about something that Octavio said, that the issue is not necessarily land reform, but commercial or, or, or reform as to how society, whether it's the government, whether it's the market. The Philippines has had a lot of land reform, breaking up large estates. And what's happened there in some cases is that the individuals who got small parcels were not used to owning their own land. They had been sharecroppers and employees. And maybe they were not risk takers. And what's happened in many cases, they've sold back their land to the original owners and have become sharecroppers again. They, they're poor, for one thing, and they wanted one large payment so that they could buy something that they could never afford. And so despite the land reform, you still have societal issues and, and, and cultural issues that can defeat the best laid plans. Just wanted to... To mention, I don't want to get into a dispute between two Latin American lawyers oh, yes, about what's for, important. But I, for I, me, I, the problem is that we don't have a market over land. That is the, the main problem. That basically, what you have uh, in Latin America and in most developing countries is uh, something that an anthropologist uh, named George Foster 
call the image of limited good. Is this idea that uh, wealth exists in limited quantities and that the only thing that you can do is uh, uh, distribute that wealth among the members of society? Is exactly. the zero the zero sum game? Yeah. And uh, and uh, the only thing way in which you can break that mentality is uh, by creating markets over land because the problem is that uh, for most people in, in developing countries that they see that the only source of wealth that you can have is land, is ownership of land. Uh, forget uh, about companies, forget about uh, intellectual property and many of the of the wealth creation instruments that you have in developing countries are not present in the developing world. And at least for me, the way in which you will be able to break that down is by creating a market over land. You have to turn land into a commodity, which is something that we don't have. Most families that own land in Latin America or in developing countries are not willing to sell it. I invite you to carry on this discussion uh, with our speakers as we break so they can set up this room for lunch and 